will give you another counselor. If you look at the King James Version, it will be comforter. If you look at the New Revised Standard Version, it will be advocate. He will give you another advocate to be with you. I've put, and and the Reims New Testament doesn't bother to translate. It just gives a transliteration. And all that a transliteration is, is it takes the Greek word and it puts the English letter that would be equivalent. And and it doesn't translate. It just gives you the Greek word in the, the English version of the Greek word. And that's what that thing is in parentheses up there. That's the uh, transliteration. And some of the translations of our New Testaments uh, use that word, paraclete. And it literally means someone who is called alongside. A paraclete is someone who comes alongside another person. And there could be any number of reasons why someone might come alongside of you uh, along the way. And that's why there's so many different translations uh, in, in, our, in our modern translations of this one word, paraclete. So the Amplified Bible, uh, and some of you have used the Amplified Bible, you know how this works. The Amplified Bible will try to give you every variation of every possible translation when it, uh, when it comes to a word like this. And there are seven different words that the Amplified Bible uses to translate the word paraclete. And here they are. Um, Comforter, counselor, helper, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, and standby. And uh, the main thing I want you to notice here is not just that, uh, not just the word paraclete, but it's the word just before paraclete, the word just before, it's the word another. The Holy Spirit is not the first paraclete for God's people. And if you, you'll catch this in verse, chapter 14 and verse 16. He says, I'm going to give you another helper, another paraclete. In other words, they already have one. And now he's going to give them another one because the one they have is about to go away. The Holy Spirit is actually the second comforter or helper that the Father has sent to us. He's replacing. Jesus says, I'm going to be replaced. <laughs> I'm leaving and there's going to be a replacement for me. So 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, it's, it's interesting. In other places in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is identified as uh, the helper or the advocate. And here it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is being identified there as the paraclete, as the helper or the comforter. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 6, uh, there's a great prophecy there about the coming of the Messiah. And it, it reads like this, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, And, of course, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Greek version of the Old Testament used the word paraclete right here. His name shall be called Wonderful Paraclete, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, even in the Old Testament, we see this word paraclete showing up. Jesus was our first paraclete from the Father. The Holy Spirit was given as our second paraclete. And the Holy Spirit was sent to do the same things that Jesus was doing for his disciples while he was in the flesh. To be a paraclete of Christians in all its varied meanings, not just for the disciples, but for all of us who are disciples of Christ too. And Jesus indicates that the Holy Spirit would pick up right where he left off, doing the same sorts of things. That's the first thing I want you to notice, that Jesus is not, or the Holy Spirit is not the first paraclete we have. He's the second as Jesus indicates here in, the, in these verses we're looking at. So let's go back to John 14, 15 through 17. 
Here's the second thing I want you to notice. The Holy Spirit is referred to as our paraclete forever. Jesus is leaving his disciples behind. And his disciples are going to be upset about it when they finally realize what's happening. Uh, They could not imagine that Jesus would ever leave them alone, but he was. And his ministry was designed to last only a few years. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples here in these words, I've been your paraclete for these few years. I'm leaving, but I'll give you a permanent paraclete, the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, a comforter, a helper, a counselor, an advocate forever. And so we learn something about the the ministry of the Holy Spirit here. It starts with the time of Jesus. As, As he leaves this world, the Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit stays in his ministry until the very end of time, or forever, however you want to think about it. Here's the third thing I want you to notice, and this shows up in verse 17. The world cannot receive the Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is received in the kingdom of God. It belongs to people who are in the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in and among God's people. That's what the Bible tells us. The world has no part in the Holy Spirit. One of the identifying marks of Christians is that they have the Holy Spirit and the world does not. And that brings us to the fourth thing I want you to see. Jesus explains here why the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. He says the world neither sees him or knows him. It's there in verse 17. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you, with you, and will be in you. And so the world neither sees him or knows him. That's why the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. The world tends to believe only in the things that they can be known through the senses. That's just how... That's a, a lot of how we operate, too. I mean, we, we, <clears throat> we are very reluctant to believe in things that we cannot see or touch or smell or taste or whatever. That's just how we are. But the world is almost exclusively that way. The world believes in things that they can touch, smell, hear, taste, or see. And we're talking about the material world. And since the world cannot see the Holy Spirit, they don't believe in him or that he even exists. And if you can't see him and you can't believe in him, you certainly cannot know him. And that's why Jesus is saying the world cannot have the Holy Spirit. You know, when we become disciples, when we become Christians, we are saying, in effect, that there are things beyond this material world that exist and that they can be known. There's a whole spiritual realm that we've never seen. We, we only understand it because we've read about it in, in the Bible. And we know that there are all kinds of things happening around us. And there's something going on uh, in this world uh, that is just beyond the vision of our own eyes. But we can see those things with spiritual eyes. It's like it says out there on the board outside in front of our building. We walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, you know, what, what we see with our eyes is one thing. But there are things that we can see with our spiritual eyes that are not so, uh, cannot be seen with our physical eyes. And so uh, when we become disciples, we're saying that there are things beyond this material world that exist, and they can be known. And I want you to listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. This is a, um, I, I think this is a, a, a good place to look for this point that we're making right here. This is where Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. 
But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So the Apostle Paul is giving what I call a new definition of what's real. The world believes that nothing exists except what, they can, what can be seen and touched. But here's what Paul is saying. If you can see it and you can touch it, uh, it's not real, not really real. The world says that's the stuff that's real, the stuff that we can see and the stuff that we can touch. But if you can't see it and can't touch it, the world says it's not real. But I guarantee you that anything that you can see or touch will not be here 10,000 years from now. And so, you know, we pound our hands on something like the pulpit or we stomp our feet on the ground and we say, uh, we say well, that's real because, you know, it, you know, I can touch it, I can see it, I can smell it, taste it, whatever I, whatever I want to do with it. That's what's real. But Paul says the real definition of what's real is what lasts forever. And he said, none of this stuff that you see, whether we're talking about, just look at your face in the mirror. Your eyes, your, your face, your hair, everything about you is, is only temporary. The building here, our cars, they all are only temporary. And Paul has given us a different definition of what's real. What's real is what lasts. Nothing material lasts forever. It's only temporary. Spiritual things, things that cannot be seen or touched, last forever. So Jesus tells us, I mean, just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. He tells us in Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And he's not saying that the Bible, as a book like this, never passes away. He's saying, but the, but the message, the truth that God has revealed is something that will never pass away. Our souls will never pass away. The angelic hosts that sing around the throne of God will never pass away. God's love will never pass away. Heaven and hell will never pass away. They are real forever. And so the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because the world only believes in things that can be seen and touched. And so Jesus can talk to the twelve about the Holy Spirit because they had already seen the things that are unseen by human eyes. They had seen the Holy Spirit, so to speak. They had begun to believe in him. And so Jesus uh, talks to them about this in John 14 and 17. This brings me to my next point here. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth and the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is the last part of these verses that we're looking at here this morning. And this is, a, uh, I think, the, maybe the part that really has gotten me starting with these verses. He says, he will abide with you and will be in you. He describes the Holy Spirit as being with these disciples at this point. But he says the Holy Spirit will be not just with you, but it's going to be in you at some point. I think this is one of the big differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit was present with God's people. Uh, he was there. He dwelt among them. 
but the Holy Spirit was never in God's people. That's different, isn't it? Now, what I'm saying here is not absolutely true, but it's generally true. There were people like Moses and David and Elijah and Isaiah and many of the prophets who had a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. You could say the Holy Spirit was in them. But for the average everyday guy uh, who lived under the Old Covenant, who was a Jew, uh, the Holy Spirit was among the people of God, but never in them. But for these special people I'm talking about, he, the Holy Spirit wasn't just with them, but he was in them. So here's a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel the prophet uh, makes this comment. He's describing an angel who's just come to him and told him uh, what his ministry is going to be. And so then he, that is the, the, the angel, said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me. And set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Well, here's the Spirit of God going into a, a human being right here. Uh, not just with Ezekiel, but in Ezekiel. We could look at Micah chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. This is how Micah describes himself as compared to uh, the seers and, and the false prophets who were in the land at the time. He says, the seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because there is no answer from God. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. And what Mike is saying, he said, hey, God's Spirit is not just with me, but it's in me. I'm filled with his power. I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. And then we could look at Luke chapter 1, verse 15, and this is where the... Uh, uh, the angel is speaking to Zacharias and to Elizabeth about, about this baby that was going to be born to them, John the Baptist. And the angel says to him, uh, says to them, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. They're talking about John the Baptist. He hadn't even been conceived yet. And the angel says, he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. John the Baptist is another one of those special people who John the Baptist lived under the Old Covenant, as did Jesus. But here, he says the Holy Spirit would be in him. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there were a, a select few people who had the Holy Spirit in them, but they were the exception. Generally speaking, God's Spirit dwelt among his people, but not in them. But in John fourteen seventeen, something is being promised Something is being told to us that, that's unique and new. Something that was not, uh, had not happened ever before. Jesus is saying the relationship between God and man is about to change. That is, he will be with you and he will be in you too. In Acts chapter 2, this is basically when all this happens. Jesus, um, when you, by the time you get to Acts chapter 2, Jesus has been crucified, he's been resurrected, and he has ascended to heaven. And so now it's time for this promise that Jesus makes about the Holy Spirit coming to finally be there. So in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does come. And he comes in like a, a, a really wild, crazy way. I mean, these people are speaking in tongues. There's, there's fire over their heads. There's wind blowing everywhere. I mean, it's, a really, a, it's really quite a scene, all these things that, that are happening here. And some of the people who were there thought that the disciples, well, mainly this is where all this was happening. They were drunk. They were crazy or something. 
And Peter, um, <clears throat> Peter finally has, uh, stands up, and he's the one who says something to them. And this is, uh, Joel, this is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Peter, staking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. But these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And so now Peter begins to quote from Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel. And these are the words that he quotes. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, not just a few people here and there. I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And Peter, Peter's saying a new day has arrived. There's something happening special here, and it has to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh, on all of mankind. And so later on in the book of Acts, well, later on in this sermon, Peter comes to the end of the sermon just a few verses later. And uh, when Peter preaches the gospel to him, he says he preaches the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he says, you know, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. And then he shakes his long bony finger at all these people assembled around him in Jerusalem. And he says, you know what? This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's verse 36. And then verse 37. uh, They all look at one another and said, men and brethren, what are we going to do? They were cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what are we going to do? And then Peter says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift. Peter talks more about this later on in Acts chapter 5. He's uh, in a confrontation with the Sanhedrin later on in Jerusalem. They told him not to, not to say the things that he had been saying. He went ahead and said them anyway. He went ahead and preached the gospel the best he could. And they arrest him and bring him back before them. And they are very upset with him. He says, you know, we've got to obey God rather than men. But here's what Peter says. He says, we are witnesses of these things. These things I'm talking about. We actually saw these things with, with our eyes. We heard them with our ears. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit is the gift. The Holy Spirit is what give, is given to those who repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus talked about this in his, uh, in his teaching, about the par- uh, teaching about prayer. And over in Luke chapter 11, the last verse of that, of that parable, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is the gift. And he says the Holy Spirit is given to those who ask him. The world's never going to ask because uh, they can't see him and they don't believe in him. And what you, what you can't see and what you can't believe in, you'll never ask for. But God's people can see him and believe in him and they can ask God and God will give what he has promised. The New Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells within the church collectively. And within individual Christians, each personally. I want to give you just four verses that I think nails this down. I don't think there's any way to wiggle out of it. Uh, Although I I know people uh, sometimes can find ways to wiggle out of anything. 
But I'm just saying the New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit dwells within the church collectively and dwells within each individual Christian personally in their body. The first verses I want you to look at are 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church. And he says, do you, and this is you plural. There's a way of indicating that you, you know, when you read the word you in English, you don't know if it's singular or plural. But with you in Greek, you can tell if it's singular or plural. Do you, plural, not know that you, plural, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Plural again. He's talking to the church. If any man destroys the temple of God, and what he's been talking about in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians is how they are, uh, they've got to be careful about how they are dealing with each other because what they do affects the body of Christ. It affects the church. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you, plural, are. That's what he says to the church, uh, to the church as a whole. The church is the temple of God. And then just three chapters later, the Apostle Paul comes back to this and he talks about how the individual is also the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And he just spent the last four or five verses explaining to these, to these Corinthians. Now, these Corinthians are all pagans. And they've had a, they've had a pretty rough life before this. And, and some of them haven't given up everything that, that they used to be involved in. So he's talking to them about fornication. He's talking to them about what they do with their bodies. He said, don't you know what? You, you can't take your body and, and hook it up to a harlot and, and not a fact. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit ain't going to go with that. The Holy Spirit ain't going to like it. He's been talking to them about their human bodies. And so he says to them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. But he says right there. He says, your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. We could also go to Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 11. And here's where uh, the Apostle Paul says it in, in, in a different way. He talks about the Spirit of God dwelling. So I'm starting at verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So three times in this paragraph right here, we're going, to read the, we're going to come across the idea that the Spirit of God dwells in people. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, that's one. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there it is again. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Three times in this paragraph, the Apostle Paul has referred to the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within the people, the Christians, the disciples who were there at Rome. And then just one last verse we could throw in here, and I could, I could give you many more. But this is 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy. Um, Timothy's the preacher at the church at Ephesus. And he's trying to tell Timothy how to be a good minister. He says, guard the truth that, that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That is, the Holy Spirit lives within us. 
So I, I don't guess anyone would argue the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. The only controversy that uh, we come across is over how the Holy Spirit dwells in us. There is a part of the churches of Christ that is adamant that the Holy Spirit dwells in us only through the Word, that the Holy Spirit is not personally there, that he's not actually in our bodies, but it's only the influence of the Word, the Word which the Spirit has given, which somehow is how the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so as we learn more and submit to the Word, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and through that he changes us, he strengthens us, he guides us, he he, he, he uses us, and, and there's a large part of the uh, churches of Christ that would go in that direction. But I want you to listen to what, what's being said when people explain it like that. They're saying, in effect, the Holy, Holy Spirit may be with us, but he is not in us. Jesus told his disciples that that was going to change. He says, he will not just be with you, but he will be in you. So John 14 and 17, go back there. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit would not just dwell with us, but the Spirit would dwell in us. And to say that the Holy Spirit only dwells with us and uses the agency of the Word to be in us is kind of like going back to Old Testament times. The arrangement that existed at the time when there were just a few select people who had the Holy Spirit. God worked through His Spirit with that, with that nation, but He was not generally in the people. I think there's a better way of putting this together. And this is how I put it together, and I think it's the writer. I wouldn't be telling you about it, okay? That is that the Holy Spirit and the Word both dwell in us. Both are there. I've already pointed to many verses that say the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But now I want you to look at Colossians 3.16, because here's where it says that the Word is in us. See where Paul says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Bible says that the word of Christ is, it dwells in us, as it also says the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The Holy Spirit uses the word to accomplish a, a lot of what happens in us. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, and this is where Paul is giving us that long list of armor that a, that a Christian has to put on in order to stand against the wiles of the devil in order to stand against the, the devil. He says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, there's something there that, that, that I, I think we need to notice. He does not say that the Spirit is the Word of God, but he says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are two different things. And the sword is something that the Spirit uses to accomplish whatever it is that needs to be accomplished. And so when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was with them and would be in them, I think he was speaking of something, of something that was new, something that had never happened before, that he was going to pour out 
his spirit on all flesh. It wasn't just going to be for special select people anymore. The Holy Spirit would be for all flesh. So when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, he promises the Holy Spirit to all who would repent and be baptized. This is Acts 2, 38 and 39. I want you to notice this. Peter said to them, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says something here. He's, this is not just about today and it's not just about you people. What I'm telling you is this. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And what he's telling you, he says, it's not just today and not just for you people. This is for all time. This is for everybody, the promise that I'm making here today. And Peter was offering something that had never been offered before. He was saying the same spirit that dwelt in David and Moses and Elijah and the prophets. He was saying the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that has given us the inspired word of God. The same spirit that hovered over the waters of creation and brought order out of that in Genesis chapter 1. That same spirit is now being offered to everybody. Just regular, everyday people like you and me. And what a blessing that is. What a blessing that is for us. Now, we, we're going to talk about some of those blessings, some of the ways that the Holy Spirit blesses us and, and makes uh, the Christian life something that is doable and something that is enjoyable and something that, uh, that, that, that we can do. But uh, that's going to have to wait for another time. But maybe there is somebody here today. Um, you just read the verses that were up there, Acts 2, 38 and 39. The Bible said, you know, these are people who are lost. They, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted by what Peter had said. And they said, what can we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit then. And maybe there's someone here today who's never been, had the forgiveness of sins, never received the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you how to get it. I'm telling you how you can have it. And maybe there's a Christian here today that just knows there's something that just needs to be said to the church. Something needs to be straightened out. Something that needs to be prayed about. And when we sing this hymn of invitation, this is for you too if you want to respond. There's a couple of elders on both sides of the auditorium here. And I just suggest you go to them and, and let them know what it's about. And they'll take it from there. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.